0: You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. On today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive our world of business and politics. First up, it's Daniel Suskind, author of The Future of the Professions. He's going to join us to discuss the prospects for professional services in an ever technological world. And he's going to be giving students some interesting advice on what kind of professions you should think about if you're aiming for employment after these exams. And what about a job in and NGO sector because charities have been one of the hardest hit sectors in the pandemic but how easy is it for them to bounce back from a completely changed socio-economic landscape and do people in Ireland still care and want to give to charities uh, when they're facing so many problems in their own homes? I'll be joined by two leading Irish charities to talk about the challenges and the opportunities that they face. And finally, it's not a problem that most of us have, but you might be amazed to learn what's happening in the world of private jets. In a world that's facing fuel shortages, inflation and climate chaos, unbelievably, private air travel is on the up and rising every month. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. Now, in an era when we all appreciate that machines can certainly outperform human beings in most tasks, we wanted today to look at the prospects for professional services for employment and ask the question... Are there tasks that should be reserved exclusively for people? Daniel Suskin, who is fellow in economics at Balliol College in Oxford and author of The Future of the Professions How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts, joins me now to discuss. Daniel, you're very welcome
2: to News Talk. Thanks for joining us. Not at all. Such a pleasure to be with you this morning.
0: Now, Daniel, the future of professions was first published in two thousand and fifteen with your father, which in itself is uh, a brave endeavour. Can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to update the book now?
2: I mean, we we had planned to update the book. I mean, when you write a book about technology, you know, inevitably, uh, almost as soon as you send off that first draft, uh, there are case studies that you wish you'd included, there are case studies that you wish you didn't include. It's just such a sort of fast moving, fast changing sure. environment. So, so one, one was just quite simply just wanted to update it, just wanted to revisit all the exciting technological changes that are taking place. Another was to just see what we got right and what we got wrong uh, and, and to sort of test the thesis and to see how the you know the time had treated our ideas. But what happened was that we wrote the updated version and were ready to send it off in two thousand and nineteen. then of course, the pandemic ended, so there was this you know additional issue which was thinking about you know how the pandemic interacts with these ideas as well. so we pressed pause and took another twelve to eighteen months to spend a bit of time thinking about that too so we, the the updated edition, which is just out, is both a reflection of you know that first period two thousand and fifteen to twenty twenty and then of course. Uh, the last couple of years of the pandemic as well.
0: Yeah, because of course the pandemic did change our relationship with technology greatly and maybe accelerated some of the things that you had written about in 2015. So just broadly speaking, it it kind of sets out two principles. One is one that we're quite familiar with, which is a more efficient version of what we have today by using technology. The other is uh, kind of transformational. That That notion of a gradual replacement of professions uh, by increasingly capable systems. But I wanted to start today by asking you a very basic question: Like, why do we need professions? Presumably, we can't do everything ourselves. But could you just talk to me about that principle of actual professions and why we need them?
2: I I think it's 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 such a fascinating question. You know, why do we have the professions at all? Why do we have lawyers and doctors and teachers and accountants and architects and, and, and. I think the answer to that question is that although from a distance the professions all look quite different, actually in analogous ways, they're all a solution to the same problem. And the problem is very simple, which is that nobody knows everything. You know, Human beings have what, well, uh, it was Herbert Hart, the great legal philosopher, called limited understanding of the world mm. around them. And so we turn to professionals because in all their different guises, they help us solve the daily challenges that we face in life that we, you know, that we can't necessarily solve by ourselves.
0: Daniel, even the notion of professions, as we know, that is constantly evolving. A nurse doing her job 20 years ago is not the same as a nurse doing their job now, is it?
2: I, I think that's right. And I think that's an important observation, which is that often when people are looking for the impact of technology on the world of work, they look to see which jobs have been created and which jobs have been destroyed. You know? And the line you often hear is, you know, are robots going to take everyone's jobs? But actually, the way that technology affects the work that people do is by uh, you know, transforming, in many cases, the sorts of tasks and activities that they have to do in their, in their jobs, exactly as you say in the case of nursing.
0: And what about things like um, those professions who need instinct, emotional intelligence, and kind of bespoke offerings? Presumably, um, that's not something that can ever be replaced by technology.
2: Well, well, it's interesting. I mean, and and this—it's a common reaction of professionals, uh, and we spend a lot of time in the book looking at the various objections that professionals have to these ideas, and and this is a common one, which is that look, what what I do requires some kind of empathetic interaction, a personal touch, and. And a um and you know, machine can never do that. And I, I don't want to diminish the importance of human interaction and empathy and so on. And I think in certain parts of the professions it's clearly the thing that we value. End of life care, just one example. Mm-hmm. But I think in some cases professionals overstate its importance. Let me give you an example. I was once talking to a group of accountants and a particularly boisterous accountant stood up and said, Look, Daniel, you don't understand the reason my clients come to me is because they want to look me in the eye. They want to sit down with me. They want the personal touch. And I, and I said to him, look, in truth, I don't think that is why your clients come to you. I think they come to you because they want their taxes done efficiently and more effectively. And and if they can find a way to do it that is perhaps more affordable and more effective than the service you offer, I think they probably might go with that. And so I think sometimes the professions are at risk of confusing the traditional way in which they might have solved a problem, which has often involved some kind of personal interaction, and because that's the way in which we've traditionally shared information in society and shared expertise confusing that traditional way of solving a problem with the problem itself. And often what people want is actually just the problem solved. They don't really mind um, how that problem is actually solved.
0: That's an interesting um, point you mentioned there about the face to face connection, because can you explain to us the the likes of telepresence, the technologies that will give the appearance of us being present and even artificial intelligence will bring the fundamental change in those type of reactions?
2: Yeah, well, I I think, you know, the the traditional way in which we've shared knowledge and information and expertise in society uh, has had to be Mm face-to-face. We've had to sit down with our fellow human beings, whether it's a doctor or uh, a teacher or an accountant or an architect or whoever it might be, and uh, face-to-face interaction is how we've solved these problems. And and things like telepresence and uh, remote work and all of that is just introducing a bit more Distance, but it's still, uh, it's still just a more, it's still just a slightly different version of the the traditional approach, which is talking to a human being. What things like you know artificial intelligence promise are fundamentally different ways of solving these problems, ways that might not require any type of interaction with a human being at all.
0: That that's true. Um, I think people tend to look at this issue from a optimist or pessimistic perspective I'm I'm an optimist in this regard I think that we can certainly use technologies and instruct them rather than be taken over by them do you find um that there's a particular sector that's particularly resistant to this or um is that change has that changed post-covid you you said at the outset you, you wanted to look at what you'd learned what you got right what you got wrong what how do you feel what what did you feel you got right
2: yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of variation across different professions, across different jurisdictions and different countries and so on uh, in, in people's attitudes. I mean, just one, one general observation is that, you know, we began the research for this book back in 2010. And and back then, the sort of reception was far more reticent, far more conservative, far more hostile in some cases than it was in 2015 or indeed in in 2020 there's been i think a general recognition that these technological challenges are coming and the question has moved from diagnosing that technological problem to just trying to be clear about what as business leaders and political leaders and so on we ought to be doing about it um so i think that's one important shift i mean in terms of the professions in general what what can i say i mean i think doctors don't like non-doctors talking about their futures. Uh, teachers have very strong opinions. Accountants are probably the most receptive. Consultants see a lot of potential for change in uh, other sectors uh, other than their own. You know, it, it, There are a few generalizations you can make, but, but really there's, there's a, just a huge amount of, of variation and, and, um, and difference.
0: Daniel, um, the state exams are underway here in Ireland at the moment, and this year, um, for for one reason or another, it sparked a lot of debate about the importance of, you know, not just going down the academic route and maybe uh, taking some pressure off students and also uh, looking at other professions in terms of employment in light of the technological changes within this book and everything you've learned over the last seven years and in all the research, can you just tell us at this moment in time, is there a piece of advice that you would give a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old person who's doing these exams um, in terms of what type of career path they could follow that would be helpful for future
2: generations? I mean, very broadly, I think there are two strategies here. Either in your career, you want to be the sort of person who's competing with these systems and machines, Who's doing the sorts of things these systems and machines cannot do? And in spite of all the technological advances that have taken place, that you know, there are lots of things that we do better than machines, certain types of interpersonal and communication tasks still, certain tasks that require judgment and creativity from us, even still. There's also another path though, which is not to try and compete, but it's instead to try and build, to be someone who's capable of designing and operating these technologies and anticipating where we can use them productively, identifying moments in our working and uh, you know everyday lives where we can use these technologies as well. What we shouldn't be doing and what people should avoid is doing things that involve the sorts of routine activities that these technologies are already very good at doing. And one of my worries is that when you look at our education system, not just primary and secondary, but also when you look at how we're training people to be, you know, in our professional institutions too. Often we're we that's exactly what we're doing. We're teaching people to do the routine stuff. You know, mm. when you think about what the first five years of being a lawyer looks like, being a junior lawyer: document review, document assembly, document retrieval. That's basically what you're doing, and yet those are precisely the sorts of activities that these technologies can already do uh, with comparative ease. It doesn't feel like a good setting in which you are cutting your teeth and learning your trade if you're a young aspiring lawyer.
0: And what about the world of politics, uh, Daniel? How do you see these types of technologies assisting there?
2: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I I think there's there's two aspects to this. One is that these technologies create new political problems. I mean, one of my interests is the impact of technology and work. And I think you know, I just don't think we're taking seriously enough some of the challenges associated with automation. So that's a big problem. There's also tremendous political opportunities uh, in the, you know, one of the one of the reasons to be optimistic and one of the exciting things about these technologies is that they offer people, you know, our trad- many of our traditional professions are creaking. Not enough people have access to good healthcare system, good education system. They don't know what their legal entitlements are. They don't know how to manage their financial affairs. And the promise of these technologies is a sort of liberation, in many cases, of the expertise to solve those problems that's traditionally only been available to mm. a very privileged and lucky few. So losing technology in that way, I think, is tremendously exciting. But there are also questions about how technology affects the practice of policy, uh, politics. and And we only need to look at the last few years, whether it's um, you know, the influence of social media, uh, on the sort of not only the information that we get, but the conversations we take part in. Uh you know, it's just one example of how technology can um uh, uh can challenge some of our traditional ways of deliberating as a as a society and as a community.
0: What do you mean, Daniel, when you say the problems of automation, where well, we're not taking that seriously? What do you mean by that?
2: every day we hear stories of systems and machines taking on tasks and activities that until recently we thought only human beings alone could ever do mm-hmm. you know, making medical diagnoses and driving cars, drafting legal contracts and designing buildings, composing music and writing news reports. You know, what does all of this mean for the vast majority of us for whom our job is our main, if not our only source of income? Um, the reason I wrote a world without work, which is, uh, um, another book, uh, which came out in 2020, was that, as as I said, I just don't think we're taking seriously enough the threat of a world where there's not enough work for people to do. But just to be clear what I mean by that, I don't think there's going to be some big technological bang in the next few years after which lots of people wake up and find themselves without work. I, I don't think that's going to happen. But what I do worry about is that as we move through the 21st century, just that more and more people might find themselves unable and frustrated because they're just not able to make the sorts of economic contributions to society that they you know, hoped or expected to make in the 20th century. So it's a less dramatic problem, but I don't think it's any less consequential.
0: Um, for now, Daniel, we'll have to leave it there. That's Daniel Suskin, fellow in economics at Balliol College in Oxford and co-author of The Future of the Professions, How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts. It's a fascinating read. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, in 2020, many, many Irish charities faced a surge in demand for their services at exactly the same time that their income was collapsing. To examine the implications of the pandemic for the not for profit sector and to look at the things that they're doing now to build back better, I'm joined now in studio by Pat Denigan, who's CEO of Focus Ireland, and on the line by Quiva de Barra, who's CEO of Troker, to learn about the challenges that they've both faced and how they've come out the other side. Pat Cuiva, you're very welcome.
1: Thanks indeed. Lovely
0: to be Thank you very much. Pat, I might start with you because you're in front of me. <laughs> just to speak to that point, Pat, that I began with, your charity looks after the homelessness area and, and ha- everything that's involved in the housing issues all around that. So the pandemic for you must have been an absolute perfect storm. Can you just give us an idea of what happened to your operation in the pandemic? Because we were all looking for isolation
1: and a place of home. How did your operation get through that? Sure. Uh, I think the first challenge to say with that was that uh, it all happened so fast. It happened to everyone just overnight uh, that we had to all of a sudden restrict our movements, all of a sudden make different arrangements than we had up until now. Um, We've about 470 staff uh, and the about maybe twenty percent, about a hundred of those or so continued working right through the pandemic, right through their at their desks and in their services. Uh, the remainder continued working as well. Uh, I'll say, and and they were working from home and working virtually and everything else, but that transition. From working in their desks, working in in services, working on the streets, um, to working from home and dealing with people and trying to deal with the new challenges that people had in that situation was really challenging uh, and very important work. Uh, I think the key thing for us as well is that right from the off, um, the public service, the the health service advice uh, was. You know, restrict your movements. Keep to yourself. Uh, try, you know, isolate as best you can. Um, and right through the pandemic, we tried to 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 uh, to manage that with our customers. It became clear that if you're homeless. It's really difficult to follow all that advice because you just don't have someplace to go. You don't have a door to pull behind you, um, and I think part of the, the challenge with that was to manage that anxiety, to manage that that anxiousness, and everything that, that developed with that uh, when all that advice was so prevalent out on the in the media, the airwaves, and everything else. Um, but that was a real challenge. Mm. Uh, I think facing into the uncertainty as well around the, the financial uncertainty, the, the uncertainty around fundraising, the uncertainty around what was coming around the corner and what was the future going to be, uh, was also a kind of a key element as well. And that, that was for all sorts of people, it was from our customers, people who were homeless or in danger of being homeless, uh, it was for staff. It was for supporters and it was for for trying to get our message out as well Mm. and keeping that message in uh, an environment which was completely dominated by one thing, which was COVID. Mm. And it was really important.
0: Cueva, I might bring you in here. That that uncertainty that Pat is talking about, is that a familiar picture to you? How did your operation cope in the the early days? What were the big challenges that were facing you?
3: So the, the challenges were were huge. They were monumental. You know, we'd never, none of us had ever experienced anything like this. And I think for us, we were dealing with um, many different environments, including environments that are highly fragile. So if I just break down, you know, the two different core environments. So we had our Ireland environment, and then we had the environment of our overseas programme countries. So we work in 20 of the most fragile countries around the world. And really, whereas in Ireland, we were able to very quickly pivot, re-establish ourselves, work from home, give people the advice and the guidance that was coming through the HSE we were actually very well equipped to be agile from that side in terms of our own operations in Ireland, um, with the big exceptions of our fundraising operations and our outreach. So, our, for example, our education work through schools and through other groups and channels. And like everybody else, we struggled, but, but we managed to get through that. Where things remained very volatile for a long time was in our country offices, where what you had was a pandemic that was you know, rolling in waves um, right across the world and country context where the health systems are extremely fragile and extremely weak. So, first of all, we had to consider about our staff, you know, national staff, um, their access to the kind of care that we wanted them to have, their access to insurance that would cover things like COVID. Um, we had to also then consider all of our partners and how their work was impacted. A lot of the travel stopped both internationally, for example, travel from people in Ireland, going out and providing support to country offices and programmes, but travel within countries as well. There was very hard lockdowns in a lot of the countries we work in. And what really impacted on people most in the countries we work in was not the, if you like, primary or direct impact of COVID in terms of health, though that was very significant. People lost loved ones everywhere. But the secondary impact... And this is an impact we're continuing to see and will for many, many years to come. Because of the hard lockdown, you had economic collapse happening very quickly for people who relied on daily wage labour to go out to earn enough money to put food on the table. Um, And that had impacts such as people withdrawing their children from school, people losing their livelihoods, selling the few assets that they had. So there were deepening and deepening spirals of poverty happening. And in fact, over the past two years, even before the Ukraine crisis, the base level of poverty represented by hunger doubled across the world, having improved every year for 20 years prior to COVID
0: course, um, that economic impact was felt by both organisations. At its core, you're a charity and so the model is based on having people help others. Um, Pat, can I turn to you about that? How did your model of funding, how was that affected?
1: We were extremely worried um, at the outset of of COVID and at the outset of the restrictions. um, About Sixty percent of our funding comes from the state, it comes from local authorities, the HSE, Trustland, people like that, um, and but the remainder, uh, the, the, all of them, and, and they run about ninety projects around the country. All of them run at a deficit. The remainder comes from the public mm. in general. It comes from the, from fundraising and donations, and we were very worried at the start about how that was going to re- how that was going to apply uh, but the public really stepped up to the mark in a massive way
0: do you think that was because your charity uniquely looks into that homelessness issue
1: i think it had a real re- that the the lockdown had a real resonance among people and they realized that as as i said before the, the the, the 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 warnings and the messages about staying isolated Isolation, staying at yeah. home and uh, keeping to yourself how do you do that if you're homeless? That really rang true. Mm. And people were people really supported uh, our message, which was we need help to do that. Um, the public really stepped up to the plate in that. We had to do things differently. Uh, we had to do things in in all sorts of shapes and forms that were different to when before. There was virtual marathons, there was virtual caminos. People were walking Caminos in their back garden and around their around their neighborhood. Uh, there was we have a our our biggest thing fundraiser is a thing called Shine a Light which happens every year in October Uh, we do it in various group locations around the country, people did it at home Uh, people did it in their gardens I remember we, on the night of Shine a Light, we were ringing around some of the participants and there was one woman, I won't mention her name but she she was doing it in Monaghan and uh, her children had locked her out into the garden for the night uh, they weren't letting her in and they were making sure that she slept outside for the night uh, so, so those type of things really gave us a huge boost both financially and in support and, and in support for staff in so how and that was, imp- that
0: was important as well to keep to kind of the mor- yeah. morale of your staff going. and we'll come to the staff's role um, in a moment Cueva what was your experience like in terms of fundraising did you have something similar to Pat I know everybody's have to be very imaginative about what you're doing now but what was the initial impact uh, on your financials
3: What's very interesting, because our experience was very similar to Pat's. um, And I think it was because even though the work that we do is further away, maybe not quite as immediate and visible as, um, you know, the work that Pat's organization does, which is excellent. But I think there was a tremendous Mm. sense of empathy and solidarity. Mm. Um, So people really responded. This was a global emergency. And I think there was that understanding that, you know, if we're having it hard here with our level of standards and services, what must be like for people with much more difficult situations? So what the experience that we had was that initially, of course, we were very, very nervous because the pandemic hit literally at the beginning of our Lenten campaign, which is our biggest public um, fundraising campaign of the year. It gives us a third of our public income and we had no way of gathering back in the physical token boxes. But what happened was something which I think and this is sort of something we hear a lot across the sector, an escalation of trends that were happening anyway. Mm. So a lot of people just moved from physical cash donation that they would have returned to their parish, to their school or maybe dropping into one of our offices or shops to online donations. So people were a lot of people were very comfortable simply to shift online and some people have stayed online. And that gives us an opportunity to dialogue with them directly, which is wonderful. Mm. Um, So I think that was that underlying sense of values and solidarity and principle that really carried us through. And both years, the first year of COVID and last year as well, we had tremendous support from the public, which was incredibly important to us not just because of our operations and the increased need that we were dealing with in our country programmes, but also because our staff really felt that support and that kept people going.
0: I was looking at the statistics for the not-for-profit sector in Ireland. They're quite incredible. Um, We've got over 10,000 registered charities and a further 20,000 organisations who are in the not-for-profit sector. That's Fourteen point five billion um, brought in annually, and employing hundred and ninety thousand staff and five f- sorry fifty thousand board members. So, it's a big employer, um, and it requires a lot of altruistic support beyond what people put drop in a bucket. Or because those board members are important yep. to kind of drive the direction of um, of every charity and every not for profit. But Pat, can I ask you about that um, staff issue because driving an organisation like yours in a time of crisis, not for your organisation but for the entire country, must have been incredibly difficult. Were How important were the staff in this?
1: Hugely important. We couldn't have achieved anything without our staff. Uh, we couldn't have achieved anything without our staff and connecting with them was so important. And like like um, like any organisation, we had to connect in, in, in new ways as well. Uh, things like in, in wellness initiatives, things like having Zoom calls, team calls, having, uh, you know, um, monthly um, town hall meetings on virtual, on Zoom and mm. on Teams. Mm. Um being able just simply to connect with people over the phone and and connect with people, uh, doing things like daily emails, can making sure that people knew what was going on, making sure that they knew that the organisation was supporting them, making sure that the 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 supports were in place and that we knew what was happening on the ground and that there was a two-way street in terms of communication. Um, You know, we all had the same concerns about, you know, the virus and was it going to affect ourselves or our families or our customers? Um, And and it's a tribute to uh, our staff and the staff in the homeless sector that the incidence of, of COVID among the homeless community um, was remarkably low compared to other cities, and what, why do you think that was? It was predominantly down to the to the that the discipline and the approach and the uh, support that that staff in the sector gave to customers. The very it was just the simple things. They the, all the usual things of washing your hands, wearing masks, using the sanitiser equipment. Making sure that the message was out there, making sure that people, when they, if they were up for it, that they got vaccinated. Uh, we ran a vaccination clinic in our in our coffee shop in 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 uh, Temple Bar, and it, right up to now, uh, one night a week, in conjunction with the HSC. But I think people could see positive benefits as well. Mm. Um, if I look at what happened in, in the homeless sector particularly, um, before the pandemic, we had about 10,500 people homeless officially in the country. Um, that amazingly dropped to about eight, just over 8,000. Um, where is it at now? It's back up to 10,000 people in the last official numbers. And why is that? But, well, I suppose... Why it dropped was 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 really important because it, it was it dropped for a number of reasons. A because of we, the the prevention work that staff in the sector were doing and, and stopping people falling into that trap. B because more housing became on, on uh, became available for t- particularly things like holiday accommodation and airbnbs and everything else like that and 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 lastly because of the level of partnership and support that came from various agencies mm. local authorities hsc and non-governmental agencies
0: Clive I might just bring you back in here um you know you have a, a very different sort of outreach to 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 pats and you have a an international dimension to your charity, can you just give us some idea of what those issues were like dealing with different uh, health services, different agencies around, how did you help your staff through those?
3: So exactly, as Pat had said, you know, our, our own staff and their well-being were our top priority and we were dealing with situations where staff weren't just dealing with the impact of COVID and the health risks to themselves and to their families, but also situations where if I take the example of Myanmar, you know, Myanmar suffered a coup in early February last year and all of a sudden the whole country stopped functioning Um offices stopped functioning, the banking system stopped functioning, the communication system stopped functioning. It was very similar in northern Ethiopia where the entire northern region was cut off from the rest of the country. You couldn't travel in there was no internet connection. There was no mobile connection. So what what we had to do then was to provide very complex responses to people whose needs were very different, both very different and very very I suppose individual, depending on the context that we are, they were in. So we applied a multifaceted approach. So for every country, we said, okay, what are the security risks? What are the health risks? What are the risks in terms of access to finance, access to funding, both for staff members and their families. So we did things like we made sure that every staff member had three months salary in advance in countries where there was a risk that the financial sector would stop functioning for them. And we put in place secondary communication systems. We put in place evacuation systems for medical emergencies. So it was very, very complex. Um, But I have to say, and again, it does come back to the calibre and the commitment of the staff that Mm. we had. So not only were our staff responding and putting in place all of these supports um, for people most impacted in our teams but they also continued right throughout to support the communities who we exist to serve. So all of those communities were also continuing to get services from us and from our partners. And some of those services were things that, you know, again, there were big spikes in, in demand for gender-based violence being one of them. So we've that experience here in Ireland. It's no different anywhere else where you have a spike in economic crisis, you will inevitably have a spike in gender-based violence. So our partners were working extra hard using, for example, mobile phone technology in Central America and Southern Africa to communicate with and to give access to people who were at risk of gender-based violence or who were who had suffered gender-based violence so that they weren't left completely abandoned without any source of support. They were given the best services possible that we were able to put in place to them in this context of restricted movement and heightened both political risk but also health risk.
0: Look, I think you've both given us a, a very um, succinct and clear understanding of your journey through the, the pandemic. It, very different and hopefully we'll, we'll come back again and maybe explore each of them in, in a in a more considered way. But for now we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Pat Denigan, CEO of Focus Ireland and Cuiva Debara, CEO of Troker. Thank you both very much for joining me today.
1: Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, according to statistics in the United States, private flights now account for a quarter of all air traffic. And it's also used by many companies for clients as part of their consumer experience, with travel packages now being built around very high-end travel excursions. Doug Gollin, founder of Private Jet Card Comparisons and travel contributor to Forbes magazine, and he joins me now on the line to discuss. Doug, you're welcome to News Talk. Thanks for joining us today.
4: Thanks a lot, Mandy.
0: Now, Doug, private jet travel isn't just something that is here to stay. It's actually on the up, isn't it? Can you just give us an idea of how much this sector is growing post pandemic?
2: Yeah,
4: it's growing significantly. Um, you know, like like all travel, uh, private jet travel uh, had a dip at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but before the vaccines, uh, people started to fly privately because they wanted to avoid the crowds in the airports. And so by June of last year, private jet uh, activity had actually reached in the United States pre-pandemic levels. And then every month since June of uh, 2021, it set a new record. So uh, the people who started flying privately, they've stuck around. People who were staying home, obviously, during the shutdowns, they've been uh, back out and traveling. People who were flying privately before and now um, there's a lot of business usage because particularly in the United States, the airlines have cut back uh, airline service. They've canceled flights, especially if you live in spoke cities. Um, sometimes it's just hard to find flights to, you know, get to your business meeting. Uh, so a lot of people are now flying privately for business. And, you know, what I see in Europe on any given day uh, British Airways doesn't have enough people to load your luggage at Heathrow Airport. So, um, you know, people people need to get where they're going, whether it's for a, a weekend getaway or for a business meeting. So private travel continues to to stay uh, popular and that's despite everything that's happening, uh, you know, in the world.
0: Yes. So the joys of unshackled commercial schedules and, you know, avoiding all the security <laughs> queues are a real and obvious draw. But how, how does this all square with um, the, the concerns that big celebrities and major corporations have with climate change? So we, we see celebrities every single day, blue in the face, telling us about climate change, climate action, businesses trying to hit their ESG targets. How do they square that circle?
4: Well, pretty much uh, uh, all of the different private jet providers, private aviation providers, the ones that sell jet cards in fractional ownership. They all have programs that allow their customers uh, to buy carbon offsets. Some of them include the, the, the carbon offsets in part of what they sell. The industry for over 10 years has been um, developing a sustainable aviation fuel, uh, which can cut uh, the carbon emissions by up to 80 percent. Um, so I think nobody likes getting preached to. The industry has been very strong in terms of uh, providing customers, uh, you know, the options uh, to offset uh, uh, the emissions. But I think the other thing to, to take a look at, you know, and private aviation is definitely a, a, a lightning rod uh, for uh, environmental uh, campaigners. Uh, but you know, if you take a look at the industry, um, a lot of the flying, it's not, it's not. Um, you know, William and Megan going uh, back and forth to California. It's business travel to destinations that aren't well served by the airlines. And private aviation allows business to take place in rural and secondary cities that um, normally wouldn't have the same type of uh, uh, business opportunity. So it helps create jobs in these secondary markets where the airlines really aren't serving uh Uh, serving those markets. And then the other thing, too, is if you look at private aviation, the whole infrastructure, the sort of the fish tank it operates in, well, that's the same fish tank that, you know, supports first responders after storms, after hurricanes, uh, organ transplant flights. So that all comes together. And, you know, when, when you talk about should we get rid of private aviation, and you didn't say that, but some people do, uh, you know, there's a lot that would be lost along with it. You know, is the industry doing everything it could and should? It probably could do more. It's doing a lot. Uh, but, you know, the, when you see the celebrities uh, lecturing us, uh, about uh, climate change, certainly climate change is an issue and everybody should be focused on it. Mm, I'm,
0: uh, Doug, Doug I'm, just, I'm more interested in exploring how the architecture of private aviation operates now. So really looking at how maybe companies like yours or those private jet cards, how they work. So you're right, bus- yeah. businesses are using it an awful lot more to get from A to B and it makes more commercial sense for them. But what is making... That, that option easier for them. So can you talk to me a little bit about what companies like yours does to attract those type of businesses into the private travel as opposed to using commercial?
4: Yeah. So we don't sell private aviation. We're a buyer's guide. Mm. So there's over 50 different companies that sell jet cards and fractional ownership and different membership programs that make it easy for people to fly so they don't have to buy the whole plane. Sorry,
0: Doug, when you say um, jet cards, is it sort of like um, a timeshare as we would have known it for private air travel?
4: (laughs) No, that, that would be more like fractional ownership. Jet cards... Or typically you're buying blocks of 25 or 50 hours. Ah, okay. So you buy the block of time. Think of it like a debit card. Okay. You, you buy a block of 25 hours. It's $200,000 that you give to the company. It goes into an account, and each time you fly, they deduct the cost of that flight and any other expenses associated with that flight out of your account, and so... Uh, The the jet cards, typically you get a fixed hourly rate so you know how much you're going to pay based on the flight time in advance. And the difference would be if you just chartered on a trip by trip basis, you'd have to call a couple brokers. They'd have to try and secure aircraft and then they would price each trip. So Mm. the trip this week to Amsterdam could cost X. Next week it could cost 2X. And so for both companies and consumers, the nice thing about the jet cards is you're locking in the price you're paying. Mm -hmm. So you sort of know as long as I call 48 hours before my trip, here's how much it's going to cost. And you don't have to take the time planning each trip, you know, through charter brokers.
0: And what about the mechanics of the industry now? So presumably you face all the same issues that the commercial um, airlines and indeed every industry in the world is struggling with at the moment, which is recruitment. Um, So what about that issue? Are pilots and say technical people paid more if they're in the private airline business?
4: Well, I think, you know, the, what you said is 100 percent, 100 percent spot on. Private aviation isn't immune to the same labor shortages and supply chain issues that the greater economy and other industries, um, you know, are being impacted uh, by. And so the private aviation companies, yes, they've had to increase pilot salaries. They're losing pilots as the airlines try to hire back pilots and are increasing salaries so are the private aviation companies the FBOs which are the private jet terminals again they're having to increase salaries and compensation to attract uh, people who want to you know work out you know the industry tends to attract people who like aviation but you know if you're sitting out on the tarmac during a 90 degree day in the summer in Geneva uh, hauling luggage. It's, you know, hmm. it's it's hard work. And so, you know, like all industries, the industry is struggling uh, uh, to, to staff up. And, uh, you know, there are issues, you know, when a plane goes in for maintenance, uh, something that, you know, would have taken a day or two days before the pandemic, it could be waiting for a port for two weeks. So, um, you know, the, like every issue, there's uh, impacts for private aviation.
0: And what of the aircraft themselves, presumably with these type of growth rates in 2022? The vehicles themselves are becoming quite an expensive and rare commodity.
4: Yeah, there's just on any given day, there's just not enough of them out there. Um, you know, the industry in terms of unless you own a plane, uh, you, you either, you know, charter or buy a jet card. And those planes come from, you know, some companies do own their own fleets, uh, but a lot of the planes are what they call managed. Mm. And that means, let's say you owned a plane and when you weren't using it, you wanted to offset some of the expense. So you put it on the charter market through your management company. And so as owners are using their own planes more and pilots can only fly a certain number of hours per month and per quarter or, you know, before they'll quit, um, there's been less inventory available um, for people who don't own their own planes because the owners are using them more. Uh, they don't have pilots always to to fly the planes. And, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, something that would have taken a plane out of, main, you know, out of circulation for two days for maintenance now might keep it out of circulation for, for two weeks. So um, there, there definitely is a shortage of, uh, of supply in the private aviation market.
0: And just about access to airports, Doug, um, do these private jets have access to military airports now? I thought that in the past it was, you know, solely governments who could use those. Do, are they using military airports as well as commercial, commercial air, airports?
4: It would be typically uh, commercial airports. You might get if you were doing government business, you might get special dispensation to use a, um, a, a airport that's um, uh, limited for military use. But you couldn't just fly your private airplane in there without a. Uh, uh, approvals and clearances and permits ahead of time. So that that would be unusual.
0: Here in Dublin, we've recently closed our premium service for this type of passengers uh, at our airport. Do you think that that's something that could prevent people from coming here, not just for tourism, but for, for business? So in other words, is, is having access to a swift route through an airport an important part of travel now for particularly people coming from the States?
4: That's a great point. Private aviation uh, contributes a significant amount of money to the economy, and people use private aviation because of the ease of getting in and out, the private terminals, uh, the ability to not wait in long immigrations and customs lines. The average private jet, uh, the passengers on that jet, not including fuel and airport services, spend $80,000, contribute $80,000 to the destinations they visit. And so, you know, if you looked at Irish tourist board numbers, you know, that's probably equivalent to a whole 737 of regular travelers. So, the people who come on the private jets, you know, they invest in businesses, they're doing businesses, they're doing business in Ireland, they're doing business with Irish companies, they're buying products and services from companies that employ people in Ireland. And then on the leisure side, um, you know, they're spending lots of money. They're not going on to hotels.com and booking the lowest rate. These are people who are taking over castles, staying in the expensive suites, um, eating at the the best restaurants, playing golf, going on fishing expeditions. So they're contributing. It's the twenty eighty rule. These are the people who are, you know, really – helping the Irish tourism industry, uh, be profitable and, you know, work towards full employment because these are the people who aren't traveling on a budget. They're spending a lot of money and they're the people who enable the, the owners of the tourism businesses to reinvest in their product and also to, to, to keep it fresh. So, you know, tourist boards and, you know, uh, Airports should be really focused on, you know, how can we attract more of these people? I think before the pandemic, you know, when you looked at places like Barcelona and Venice, there was a, a concern about over-tourism. When you think about the private jet traveler, you have five or six people arriving in Ireland spending as much money as a full 737 of regular tourists, and nothing wrong with that. But provi- the, there's less stress on the infrastructure when you have a group of six people going around in a Mercedes van spending a lot of money. So, um, you know, I think, I think it would be short-sighted to, to not invest in private aviation. And, um, you know, certainly what we're seeing post-pandemic is people who didn't fly privately before, you know, once they started flying privately – they're now flying privately regularly. So Mm. it's, it's an important business segment that, uh, airports and tourist boards should be focused on.
0: Well, Doug, particularly our tourist board, they should definitely be targeting these people because castles and executive suites are all we have left in Ireland. Everything else <laughs> is absolutely chock block at the moment. Sadly, the the shortage of private jets is not a problem that I'm going to be facing anytime soon. Uh, but for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Doug Gollin, founder of Private Jet Card Comparisons. Doug, thank you very much for joining us today.
4: Mandy, thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and now why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're also available as a podcast for us from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to all of today's guests and to producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and they'll be bringing you all the highlights from the Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your day. Taking stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to
2: Skillnet Ireland. Sunday morning at 9. On News Talk.